Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta-8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta-9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Thomas Fox. He's the Dean of Artificial Intelligence and Human Health at Mount Sinai. He's also the founder of Page AI. So we're going to talk about his work. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be with you. Tell me a bit about your background and how you first got into AI. And then we'll talk about your current research. Okay, happy to do that. As you can hear from my accent, I'm originally from Austria, but uh, in the U.S. for a very, very long time. I was, like many nerdy kids, always interested in tech. And when I was, I don't know, probably too young, my father took me to a rescreening of 2001 Space Odyssey. And then I got hooked on, on AI and, and space. And uh, since then, wanted to build, build an AI that can actually be helpful and not, of course, as uh, difficult as Hal 9000 in the movies. I studied uh, computer science at my first uh, startup with 16, actually during high school still. So I studied mathematics and computer science, then did a PhD in machine learning. In these old days, it was quite niche. The largest conference had 400 participants, so the world changed drastically than today. Uh, already back then, we applied it to healthcare. So we coined the term computational pathology 18 years ago by now. And uh, since then, I'm, with a short exception, working for NASA, all the other time uh, working in healthcare and uh, trying to build AI that can be useful and helpful. Excellent. Well, tell me about your current research. What are you focused on? So the research side, we are interested in building models that can specifically help in in the case of cancer care and cancer research in my lab. Mount Sinai broadly applies AI, of course, to all kinds of areas of healthcare. And um, at PAGE, we are very focused on the the clinical market. In my research, we are looking at, for example, how can we see molecular differences in the morphology of cancer? That means practically in 
pathology, you look at these very large images, so histological slides, for example, from a biopsy, a prostate cancer biopsy or breast biopsy are going to get scanned and you end up with these very large images. And there you're interested in finding the cancerous cells, differentiating different kinds of cancer, and then also predicting, for example, response to treatment or predicting what's the right therapy for the patient. And you can do that by analyzing how the cancer growth, how it looks like. And some of these changes in cancer growth are initiated by molecular changes, so effects in the DNA, either of the cancer or of the patient. And if you can recognize that from from these very common clinical images, uh, we then can use AI to help many more patients as it is uh, the case today where you need expensive sequencing to, for example, find out this molecular difference. What does that mean? So you're not just using it in a visual way to look at tumors, but you're also doing it, using it to use high-speed sequencing. Is it cell sequencing or what, what are you doing? What are the specific applications? So specifically what we use is uh, somatic sequencing, so that's sequencing of the tumor itself. and Usually we use that as label input for these large-scale AI models. So for example, one of the oldest known mutations that can be actually targeted in practice is EGFR. So that's a growth factor, very important in lung cancer. And if you have that, your cancer has that mutation, you can get a very specific therapy. The problem is, although that's known for quite some time, even in the US, you have between 20 and 30% of lung cancer patients who are not uh, getting tested for that mutation. Uh, usually that testing is done with sequencing or PCR tests, but again, they are not done for a multitude of reasons. Very often these are financial reasons. So what we could show recently is that we can look at these very common H&E stain slides, so these pinkish, bluish microscope slides you get from a standard lung cancer biopsy you would get before treatment and we can predict with high accuracy if the cancer itself has the EGFR mutation or not. So the beauty of that is you can now take that algorithm and roll it out in areas where you would not have access to sequencing, either not in time because it takes too long or because of financial reasons. So that's a good example how AI can be actually used to democratize access to healthcare because now you can use it not only at Mount Sinai or Stoic Catering, but in community clinics and actually across the world to get better treatment for these patients. Well, how long does sequencing take uh, traditionally versus your method? So sequencing usually takes a long time. The whole process usually takes between three and five weeks still today. Because you have to imagine the pathologist first have to actually prepare the tissue. So the surgeon, first of all, has to conduct the biopsy and the tissue has to be prepared. Usually it's cut into 20 or 30 slices that are put on these microscope slides. And then they are sent to a sequencing company and there they are then processed and then the results come back. In lung cancer, that's especially a problem because the oncologists tr want to start treatment much, much earlier and not wait for these sequencing results. And if we can do it now computationally, then on these images, then we can actually do it at point of care. So the biopsy is taken, the biopsy samples are prepared, and at the same time a pathologist actually looks at them and decides if it's cancer or not or what kind of cancer, we can run these tests and uh, decide if it has, for example, a EGFR mutation or in breast cancer, if it has a HER2 mutation, and then the oncologists get that information immediately. You can then act based on this information from the AI, 
or you can, for example, use it to stratify patients and send the ones to sequencing where there's a high likelihood and save them money uh, for the cases where there's for sure no change in EGFR. And that can also reduce the, the cost in healthcare, which of course is an important goal given the exploding cost in the US. Well, what, why would the AI be the sequencing? You still need to use the machines. You still need to use the existing methods unless they're changing at the same time the AI is interpreting where that the interpretation is what takes the lion's share of the time. Yeah, the beauty is in our case, you don't have to sequence. So the AI looks only at the cancer itself, how the cancer pattern, how the growth looks like, how the vessels look like, how the glands look like. And for some mutations like EGFR, that change is significant enough that the AI can learn just from the image itself if it is mutated in EGFR or not. So that sounds like magic, but there are many cases where it's known that the change in cancer growth, or as pathologists call it, the morphology, is so significant that you can actually see it. In bladder cancer, there's another mutation called FGFR, and there even humans can actually differentiate it quite well, and we could show that we can build AI that recognizes it. So you don't actually have to sequence. So that means you get the result within 20 seconds, after you have the digital image, instead of waiting five weeks for it. And that can be really a change in paradigm, how you treat patients or for which patients you're going to order additional tests like sequencing or other more time-consuming. Does it make it cheaper because of the speed or does it the same cost or more? Treehouse Live Rosin Liquid Diamond Vape Pens combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. One E, not two. When you go there, take your vape game up to new heights. Enjoy 30% off your order and get a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll when you use coupon code GENIUS. Again, that's G-E-N-I-U-S. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. Treehouse, the best that legal, delivered to your door, THC has to offer. So it is significantly cheaper, but you need digital images. So still in the U.S., in most pathology departments, the pathologists actually look through a glass microscope onto a glass slide. So for them, pathology has not changed in 150 years. It's kind of surprising. It's one of the last disciplines in healthcare that's not completely digital yet. And that, of course, leads to a lot of problems in practice. And currently, we are in that revolution in that space from a purely analog to a digital discipline so that all these slides get scanned and you need a digital setup to then run the AI on top of it. That can be a completely digital sign-out process like at Mount Sinai where we produce uh, 1.5 million slides per year or it could be just a cheap desktop scanner where pathologists only use for example the lung cancer cases to get the results of these tests but it has to be digital. As soon as it's digital, the technical cost is neglectable, right? So that's all run in the cloud. For example, Page has a beautiful offering where everything goes through the page. So uh, I would think you'd have to train the AI very narrowly and you'd have to get, there's a, I would think you'd have to train the AI narrowly on one particular type of cancer in order for it to be, you know, super effective and to get all that data. I think that, I guess there would be a big upfront cost, but once you have that, it shouldn't be too bad. Is that right? 
Exactly. Yes, yes. That's perfectly put, Richard. The, the real cost is in training the systems. And for that, we need a lot of compute. So, for example, for Page, we build the world's largest compute cluster for pathology alone. So that stands in New Jersey. And even that is not large enough for the new generative AI models we are training there. That's done together with Microsoft Research because there you need thousands of GPUs to train from that enormous amount of data. For example, we have more data than all of Netflix, the whole Netflix catalog, all pixels from all uh, movies, from all shows, from all episodes of all shows, are less data than page users to train these models. So that gives you a notion how huge these data sets are. But after you've trained these models, you can deploy them enormously efficiently in the cloud. So for a pathologist in practice, it's a near zero footprint solution. A slide is scanned, it's uploaded, it goes through the page platform. They can look at it through the, the FDA approved viewer. And then they can also use FDA approved algorithms like the prostate detection algorithm and then modern computational tests like the EGFR one I just described or HER2, for example, on top of that. So that's then very fast and very cheap. Have a, a separate model for EGFR versus HER2. Yes. Like, do you have a generic one first that looks at it, and then there's a slotting mechanism, and then a secondary AI, a different instance, maybe takes over once you set EGFR and then further categorizes maybe the sub. So you're pointing at exactly that phase change we are in in machine learning. So until now, you had to have separate models for all these purposes. So, for example, we have a separate prostate cancer model, a separate breast cancer model, lung cancer, and so forth. And then in, on top of these cancer detection models, we then have specialized models for HER2, HER2, EGFR, FGFR, or, for example, response prediction, response to immunocheckpoint inhibitors, and so forth. What that new change in AI with these foundation models, or, or generative AI, if you want, allows us to do is train very, very large models in an unsupervised way, or technically as, as it's called a self-supervised training, like GPT-4, for example, at very large scale from uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of images. Uh, and then based on that, you have a model that's a general purpose foundation model that understands tissue morphology, cancer morphology very well. And then you can use it on a very small data set in a few short learning approach to then use it for that purpose. So that's exactly the phase change we are in. And that's, try that's what we are trying to do, build pan-cancer algorithms, multi-organ algorithms that then can be used across multiple domains. Why would that be necessary? Is that because of lack of data for certain, let's say, genetic mutations or for certain cancers that are very rare? Mm -hmm. Or is it, I mean, what, what would be the reason to do that? Yes, yeah, so that's one purpose. You have rare mutations. Another one is, for example, data from trials. So if you have trials of new drugs, then usually that's tested only on a few hundred patients, so you don't have thousands. Or you have very rare cancers. So 50% of cancers are rare cancers. So there's that very long tail of rare cancers. So if you get cancer, you have a coin flip chance. If you have one of the big ones, lung, prostate, breast, dermatology, and so forth, or one of these super rare ones, right, from bile duct, cholangio, to all kinds of other very rare cancers. And usually people don't address these because they are, they are rare, the markets are, are very small, and that's something which really annoyed me for a very long time. And 
that new approach to AI that we can train these large foundation models across all these cancer types allow us to actually address these small ones. And that's a, it's going to be a huge change for the treatment of these rare cancers. What about pre and post uh, radiotherapy, pre and post chemotherapy? Because that induces, you know, new mutations, or you could say that cancer alters itself to evade the effects of chemotherapy or radiotherapy. I could think this would be very useful in another sense to evaluate that. Yes. So in multiple ways. So one is, for example, what you have very often, let's say in prostate cancer, that you start with an adjuvant treatment and then you have the resection of the, of the prostate, for example, and you want to analyze how well the treatment worked. And then you have all these treatment effects in the tissue of the prostate. And then you need AI that can actually work not only with naive tissue at the biopsy level, but also with treated tissue, for example, in this prostate cancer. Uh, scenarios. In radiation therapy, because you bring it up, for example, head and neck, there one of the big questions is actually to also, again, predict response to the treatment, right? If you have HVB-induced uh, head and neck cancer, that's something you want to actually predict the response directly from a biopsy. So that's another application we are working on at, at Mount Sinai, but there are no commercial available tests out there yet. Yeah, I can see how it have uh, lots of applications. You know, the statistic you gave that 50% of cancers are rare, again, is that pre-chemotherapy, pre-radiotherapy, or post, or do you know? Oh, that's just at first diagnosis. So that's that's independent of where you are in the treatment process. I think what you're alluding to is that during treatment, of course, you have cancer cells very often that evade treatment. So you have evolutionary pressure on these cells, and then you get resistance. So very often, for example, chemotherapy works well for a year or so or some, some amount of time, and then you get resistance. And then you have to retest. For example, take another biopsy, again, use AI, hopefully, to stratify and then do sequencing, for example, and find out what mutations have arisen in the cancer during that evolutionary pressure, and then hopefully have a another drug that could actually target these these mutations. But for that statistic that 50% are, are rare cancers, you would, the definition is uh, at primary diagnosis. Well, what about a separate model from metastatic sites? You know, let's say lung cancer. Okay, so you got models to look at it in the lung. But if a common metastatic target site is, let's say, the liver, mm -hmm. um, I would guess you'd need different models to look at metastatic lung cancer lesions that are now in the liver that are metastasized there, also in the works. Yes, you could be a reviewer of our papers. That's that's one of the main things that rightfully always comes up. Very often, of course, the metastatic sites, metastases behave differently than the primary cancers. Not always, but very often. And uh, the liver is, of course, a, a very common metastatic site for all kinds of cancers. And what we have to do in practice is you have to have a proper experimental setup to prove out that your system works for either, or if it only works for one, it has to be indicated that it only works for one. In reverse, you can actually do quite interesting things like if you, for example, have a metastasis somewhere and you do not know where it comes from, the way that the metastasis grows resembles the original site. So you can actually have AI to help you with cancers of unknown primary to find out where the metastasis came from. But you have to be always very careful and indicate a separate test, validate and indicate if algorithms or tests work for primary or metastatic sites or both. Well, also too, if you have a cancer and you look at the probability of different differentiations, different cascades of mutations, if you catch a cancer, let's say early, there's only a primary, you can evaluate probably the probability of 
it taking path X, Y, or Z based on the administration of a drug or not, or based on the initial condition of the person. If you've got metastatic sites and you cannot find the primary, perhaps if you understand the, the cascade, you backtrack and find the primary mm -hmm. based on the metastatic sites you see. So I guess there's tons of applications. The, yes, absolutely. The problem is with what you just described, there you really have, you need longitudinal information, right? So information over time. And the deeper you go in these scenarios, the fewer samples you're going to have. And that's, of course, a difficulty, especially for machine learning algorithms, so for AI. So to just give you a few numbers, so then the FDA approved algorithm from PAGE was trained and tested on 60 thousand slides and actually run on an external validation set of 14,000 patients from 800 different institutions out of 45 countries. So these are humongous numbers. You would have, for example, in prostate cancer, but you do not have these in rare cancers. And you for sure don't have them if you, as you described, if you want to actually stratify by where you are in your longitudinal process of, for example, cancer growth and treatment. And that's the main reason why we are very excited about these large foundation models because like with text where you can use chat GPT in zero shot learning or few shot learning on very small specialized data sets, we do the same in pathology. So we build these very large models from hundreds of thousands of slides and then use it on very small trial data or longitudinal data, for example, where you have very few samples. And that's the only hope we have to actually get stable models out of it, because otherwise you would just completely overfit your small data sets and they would not generalize. And to that end, it's really important that we actually push development of foundation models and generative AI in healthcare so we can address all these scenarios that are completely unaddressed today. One thing that, that jumps out at me is that since you're able to do the analysis so quickly, this would open the door for clinical trials that could maybe, you know, once a week they could, well, maybe not that much if it's a required biopsy. Maybe maybe for a blood cancer once a week they could do it, but for a, a solid tumor, maybe once a month they could do data, let's say for a year, and you guys could process it quickly and then get a longitudinal look of how certain people's cancers progress over time. Yes. Once a month is still a, would be a lot for biopsies, but you can do it, of course, much more often. And you can also do it globally and remotely. I think that's going to impact trials much more because currently these samples have to be, first of all, they have to be prepared the same way at 100 different sites. And then they have to be sent to some central location where at one point, a small team of pathologists or one pathologist looks at all these cases to guarantee that you have the same readout of these cases. And that's, of course, all cumbersome and slow and error-prone. And if you can actually run AI just on all these sites, and again, we are talking about dozens of countries, hundreds of sites very often for these big trials, then that would give you a much more reproducible signal for all these places. Tons of stuff to do, but go ahead, yes. Now, we just wanted to address, so there are actually much more important more near-term issues here, and that is that we don't have enough pathologists. So the number of medical students that go in pathology is going down constantly. Most of the pathologists are actually approaching retirement age in the next 10, 15 years, uh, and the number of cancer cases goes up and the complexity goes up. So even in the U.S., to just keep the standard of care, you're going to have to use AI. And that's very important to understand. There's no other way out of that. And if you yep. look 
outside of the U.S., where you have countries in the in, in South America, for example, or in Africa, where you only have one or two pathologists for a whole country, right? So there, you don't have anybody looking at these slides, and that with, of course, terrible outcome for the patients. There, you could have enormous impact with AI. Well, I don't know if it would work out, but I do have a referral for you, Dr. Azra Raza. She has, I believe, over ten thousand samples that are in, you know, liquid nitrogen from past patients for, I don't know which cancers, I don't know for how long. He has many, many thousands of samples, so I can connect you offline, and perhaps that could be a good addition to your data set. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, it would be very interesting. Okay. Well, I can see the tremendous potential. Is it difficult for you guys to get data from the different cancer centers and the patients? Is there a lot of, you know, a lot of paperwork that, that needs to be done for them to opt in? Or once they do a biopsy, is it no longer their property? And can you access the images pretty easily? Like, how hard has it been for you to get this data? It's, of course, difficult process, rightfully so. Because, of course, healthcare is, first of all, it's a regulated space. That's very important. We can talk about regulation and AI in a minute. But also on the patient side, of course, private, you need privacy, you need consent, you need de-identification and anonymization tools to make sure research is conducted properly. Everything has to be done, of course, under the uh, overview of an IRB, so an institutional review board uh, that makes sure that everything goes as it is necessary so that the patients are protected. The first thing I actually initiated when I came to Mount Sinai was a AI ethics committee. Because AI, of course, poses additional problems on top of uh, classic uh, medical questions you always have with trials and drug development and so forth. And what we do at Mount Sinai is we have a large group that includes not only computer scientists, but especially also bioethicists. So people who were thinking about ethics in healthcare for many, many decades. And in addition to patient representation and physicians and so forth. And that whole group helps to decide what AI from external vendors can be used, should be used, what should it be tested, what should it show, and also for internal development, how the data can and should be used in addition to the IRB and what implications would AI have in this area. So I think that's absolutely key to fulfill all these necessary guardrails in healthcare to develop AI. But on the flip side, what we should not forget is that there is enormous potential, and we see it every day. I mean, PAGE is an exemplification in pathology, right? That's FDA-approved, it's safe and effective, and first AI-approved, FDA-approved algorithm, the first FDA-approved AI in pathology to this day, and that now gives pathologists a tool they didn't have before. But it's just one, and there should be, of course, many. And beyond pathology, of course, if you look at all kinds of disciplines, AI can have enormous impact from cardiology to dermatology to ICU data and so forth. And we have to make sure that develop AI at scale that we can impact these areas. If you're going to look back at healthcare in 10, 20 years, it will seem like the Middle Ages, what it's done today. I'm deeply... Probably not that. No, no, especially, I mean, cancer is a good example. I'm deeply convinced if we build AI in the right way with the right guardrails in healthcare that will tremendously change the space. So in 20 years, no physician will execute their job as they do today. Yeah, like you said, it'll be standard of care to, to use it as an augmentation to the physician's uh, decisions and interpretation. Mm -hmm. what, uh, you mentioned guardrails. What in particular with these kind of applications is do you believe the necessary guardrails should be, you know, ballpark, not necessarily exact, would you say? So on the, first of all, on the data side, we already addressed privacy. 
is an important issue. Also, when you deploy these systems, for example, Page is not only HIPAA compliant, but GDPR compliant. You need large security teams to make sure that everything works well. One reason why actually most healthcare systems move to the cloud is because they are mortally afraid of ransomware attacks and they realize that their own security teams can't handle that. And it's better to do that in the cloud, of course. So that's a big change in healthcare. Even five years back, you had still people thinking it makes sense to hoard everything locally and have your own IT team take care of it, but it's just too risky. So cloud-based SaaS applications are certainly a big change, also improving the security for and then privacy for then on the development side, it's, of course, key, first of all, that you have proper experimental setup and practices. And that's why, of course, machine learning talent is so important because that's something you only learn in practice over many, many years to really understand when a model overfits, how you test it, how you properly test it and validate it and externally test it and so forth. That illusion that some have that now you can actually just throw everything in ChatGPT or you have some off-the-shelf tools that... No, there's no way. That's a joke. No way. Exactly. (laughs) That won't happen there. And then, of course, you need IRB oversight. First of all, before you even start to make sure that all of that is fulfilled. And then on the ethics side, you have to also make sure what the impacts are. There are a lot of scientifically interesting questions we might want to address from the machine learning side, but they have either no practical impact or even negative impact. For example, you also have to prove out what we do constantly is that AI works for all patients, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of race and ethnicity, regardless of all kinds of variables that could actually influence that that behavior of this algorithm. And that's a very complex task, right? It's not trivial. There's a lot of work involved from the biostat side, from the demographic side. First of all, you have to collect that data, right? If you have, for example, patient-reported race and ethnicity, that's a very difficult variable and very often it's not collect. At Mount Sinai, there's a whole institute that deals with uh, collecting that data so you can prove out that all kinds of healthcare measures, uh, including AI, actually work for everyone. So that's an enormous effort. What's unique also at Mount Sinai is, as the largest healthcare system in New York City, that we have a very diverse patient population. So we serve not only Manhattan, but Queens and Bronx and everyone. And so it's one of the most diverse places in the world. That's why it's such a great place to actually build AI, because you can prove out if algorithms, that algorithms work or you can disprove claims of others if they don't. The, that's a big part of developing it. And then on the deployment side, of course, you have to make sure it's affordable, it's accessible. And that's another difficult aspect that often, of course, goes into greater questions, how else healthcare is organized in the different countries. For example, Page is also very active in Europe and also in the UK, where, where we are part of NHS trials, or for example, in Brazil. And all these countries and continents have different regulatory frameworks, of course, and different reimbursement frameworks. How you then, at the end of the day, go the last mile and get it in the hands of physician is a challenging task, but you can today, right? So you have the tools, for example, in prostate cancer, and others where it's not science fiction, but it's possible, right? And the top institutions in the U.S. are digital and using AI. Okay. All right. Excellent. What's the best way for people to keep tabs on your work? Because it's, I believe it's of critical importance. It's going to be huge. I know it may take a while, you know, to get through all the trials and to satisfy all the factors that you talked about, accessibility, affordability, you know, robustness, et cetera. But what's your, um, first of all, what's your estimate 
on when this potentially could be in clinical use? And then how can people track what you're doing in page AI and find out more? So it's actually in use today. That's very important. It, it's not science fiction in pathology. You can use it today and you have the choice of a safe and effective algorithm, for example, in prostate cancer. So PAGE is used from Oxford to Brazil and everything in between, including large labs and small labs in the US. So you can do that today. So if you want to run a modern pathology department, reach out to PAGE, PAGE.ai. PAGE stands for, actually, the name has a meaning. It stands for Pathology Artificial Intelligence Guidance Engine. And it's a whole platform that helps you to handle your slides, to store your slides, to view your slides. The whole sign-out process works on the page platform and on top of it you have AI. That's state of the art. There's no reason to wait for something. If you want to be part of the future of pathology, you can do that with. On a more basic science side, uh, again, anybody should reach out to us at Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai is, I think, the foremost place for AI in healthcare. We have now a department that's solely dedicated to AI. We just founded a new center for, for example, AI in ophthalmology. There are projects from large language models to dermatology to psychiatry to all kinds of areas where AI is actually implemented in basic research and sometimes also already in better tests in the clinic. So Monsanto is the right place to do AI academically in healthcare. Okay, well, very good. Well, Thomas, it's been a great call. Very interesting. I love what you're doing. It's got so many applications to help people. So I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Anytime, Richard. Thank you. It was really an engaging conversation. Joined it. Really enjoyed it a lot. Remember, before you go, You've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep. With unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab tested to ensure quality and consistency, Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E. H-O-U-S-E dot com. Remember, there's one E, not two. And enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.